Shapers on Jazz FM. Listen in color. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal. That was Midnight Train to Georgia from Gladys Knight and the Pips here on Jazz Shapers with me, Elliot Moss, on a Saturday morning on Jazz FM. Thank you very much for joining me for another edition of Jazz Shapers, the place where you can hear the very best of the people shaping the world of jazz, soul and blues, alongside their equivalents in the world of business. My business shaper today is slightly different, and I'm very privileged to tell you that he is John Bird MBE, the founder and editor-in-chief of none other than The Big Issue, on your streets since September 1991 in London and now lots of other places around the world. You'll be hearing lots from John very shortly. In addition to hearing from him, you'll also be hearing from our programme partners at Mishkondorea, some words of advice for your business. And on top of all of that, of course, a brilliant mix of music from the shapers of jazz, soul and blues, including Wilson Pickett, Marcus Valley, and this. It's Dr. John and Revolution. That was Dr. John and Revolution. Hello and thank you very much, as I said earlier, for joining me here on Jazz Shapers. My business shaper today is none other than John Bird, MBE, as I said, the founder and editor-in-chief of one of my favourite magazines on the street, which is called The Big Issue. John, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you for inviting me. You've had quite a journey. Um, Tell me a little bit about your childhood and how that led you to a whole range of jobs before you happened to open when you were actually mid-40s, the big issue. Um, Well, I was born just after the Second World War um, in slummy Notting Hill uh, at a time when it was largely a London Irish enclave. Uh, I was born into enormous poverty enormous violence and racism we were as young children we were taught to not like black people and jews and indians and even english people uh because that we were, it wasn't enough just to be poor it was to think poor and that is one of the limitations of poverty that it sometimes not always but it does throw up prejudice so i was born into this rat infested god evil you know, God-forsaken place, and homeless at five because my mum and dad didn't pay the rent um, in an orphanage between the ages of seven and ten. It wasn't a particularly auspicious beginning, and I think what is so interesting now looking back that it's no great surprise that I went off the rails, became a drinker and drug user and got into crime and got into antisocial behaviour, arson and all that stuff. But you did something about, quote-unquote, that sad story, that story of poverty. What is it that you think in you made you think, you know what, I need a job, I need to change things? Because often that, and we'll talk about how this is, how the, where the big issue came from and what's happened since then and so on, but you were a, a bus builder, a machine operator, a self-employed prince, you did a whole tonne of stuff. What was the pivotal moment when you said, I've got to change what's going on in my own life? 
Well, it changed before. Uh, it changed when I was 21, when I was hiding from the police uh, in, in, of all places, Paris. If you're going to hide from the police, I do recommend it. <laughs> and there's lots of beautiful young women. And in those days, every young man in London, all, everyone looked like Russell Brand. You walk down the King's Road and there'd be 500 Russell Brands. <laughs> But when you went to Paris, there weren't many of them because they hadn't. The French, for all their, you know, uh, for all their style, were about five years behind us. You know, they only had Johnny Elodie or someone like that. Uh, so I went off to Paris, and of course, I was the only Russell Brand walking down the Champs Elysees, ending up selling the Herald Tribune, the New York Herald Tribune, and then selling the Evening Standard. Um, and there, I met uh, some haute bourgeois incredibly hot bourgeois Marxist, Leninist, Engelist, Trotskyist. Um, because in France they've got this kind of thing that, you know, you a lot of the a lot of the progressive left are incredibly rich and incredibly posh. And I met this particular girl who, when we started to talk about the crisis, La Crise, I said, well, you know, it's all those blacks and Jews and all those Indians and Arabs and all that stuff. And they just turned on me and her and her friends just chastised me and through also through a process of osmosis. I, After about three months, I'd become a Marxist, Leninist, Angelist, Trotskyist, which hasn't stayed with me for the whole of my life. But what has was the way in which they described me as a piece of detritus issuing from the from the anus of... British imperialism, and they really had to go up my racism, which was phenomenal. Uh, so I came away as an internationalist. I left Paris after six months. And ever since then, I've been anti-racist. I've been anti uh, all the kind of phobias that people have. I don't join in with the um, looking for, who, the, you know, the fly in the ointment, who to blame. And I really do owe that to uh, some very wonderful haute bourgeois posh uh, people who had adhered to Marxism probably for a very short period of time because they probably then went on and became bankers or <laughs> worked in yes that's that's where they all are they're that's all where they all are and find out much more from my business shaper John Bird about um, what has helped him become the man that he is time for some music this is Wilson Pickett and in the midnight hour That was Wilson Pickett and In the Midnight Hour. John Bird is my business shaper. He's the founder of The Big Issue. And as you found out, had a bit of a, a revelatory period, six months with the haute bourgeois mob in Paris way, way back. Um, and you said it kind of led to a sense of consciousness, which is often what happens when people start to see the light. I mean, obviously, you didn't go. You weren't at school for very long, by the sounds of it, in between your sojourns in, in prison. You didn't go to university. And yet you speak as a very, very educated man. And I'm sure that's also started that kind of revelation about your own your own intelligence and your own sense of who you were probably began back then what happened then what happened when you got back to london well i then joined a revolutionary organization and i met some other people uh who really um challenged my uh what they called my lumpen proletariat you know underclass values 
And uh, because even though I w- I'd given up racism and, 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 and was quite emphatic about it, there were still many other things about me. I, I, was, I wasn't house trained. And so therefore I joined this Marxist group who nearly all were, uh, they were people who'd got their degrees at polytechnics, but they were all very middle class. There were some workers there. And of course... I couldn't understand the working class because, to me, the working class was the underclass, was the criminal classes, the the wife beaters and all that that I'd come from. And I couldn't understand it. And they kept going on about this new, you know, the the, the solidarity between workers. And I said, I, I said, I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, and then I still, the police were still after me. I was still being sought. And I went up north and lived in Sheffield. And there I did discover a totally new class of people who were absolutely different from any other class I'd ever met. And they were industrial workers. They were people who uh, were incredible, you know, great solidarity, miners, steel workers and all that, and were all looking out for each other. And one of the greatest tragedies of what what, um, Margaret Thatcher did to Britain was to destroy that sense of not just comradeship and not just you know strike striking and all that but a sense of of ownership of each other's lives and i went up there and i was totally and utterly blown away with this new class of people uh whenever anybody made films about the north it was normally some posh geezer from the south who'd been to a public school and then went up and made a film like saturday night and sunday morning or or, you know, all those kind of new films or, you know, uh, A Taste of Honey. And they always showed the working classes as, as almost a kind of uh, backdrop. You know, they were, they were all kind of... They were comic, funny, drank too much, but there was noth- nothing of this sense of, of cultural unity. And then I was up there and I thought, wow, this is, this is it. Uh, unfortunately, then I got into a few problems up there, so I had to come back down. Uh, to London and and that's when I began my renaissance uh, well not renaissance my naissance let's be honest because it wasn't a re Um, and I became I started to train myself as a printer and then over the next 10 years morphed from being a printer working for other people into becoming a highly successful small printer publisher uh, living in West London in Acton uh, and and becoming uh, almost like obsessed with business and 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 the social impact of business, working with charities, uh, especially work um, homeless charities, and working with churches and synagogues and and uh, with uh, even with mosques, are uh, on doing a lot of printing for them and doing stuff like that, and and really enjoying the sense that I wasn't an outsider. I was an expert. I was a person who could keep their costs down. I, I was the official printer of the Victorian Society, and one of the things the Victorian Society did, and they should be blessed, and they should be sent millions of pounds because they saved uh, some pancreas from becoming a new Euston station. So all of that stuff where people have made a shed load of money out of... Uh, out of the architecture of, of, of the 19th century. It's really down to people like Sir John Betjeman and, of course, the Victorian Society. And I had the privilege of being their printer. 
and we're going to hold it right there before we go to the next chapter of the remarkable uh, life of John Bird. Latest travel come up in a couple of minutes here on Jazz FM. But before that, some words of wisdom from our programme partners at Mishkondare for your business. Hi, my name is Andrew Goldstone and I'm a partner in the tax group at Mishkondorea. A lot of entrepreneurs ask me in all this debate about tax avoidance, is there actually anything out there that will help me or my business? Well, the answer is yes. There are loads of entirely legitimate tax reliefs just waiting to be used. Tax reliefs which the government specifically introduced to encourage entrepreneurs and those who invest in them. Take the Enterprise Investment Scheme and its baby brother, Seed EIS. Both offer really generous tax reliefs for business angels. And if you're an entrepreneur hoping to raise money from the angel community, you absolutely have to structure your business so that your potential investors can get the relief. Because if you don't, they'll go elsewhere. Then there's the EMI Scheme, a very tax-efficient employee share scheme aimed at attracting and keeping your best staff. And we have Entrepreneur's Relief, which can offer you a reduced 10% capital gains tax rate when you eventually sell your business. But there are conditions and you do need to plan ahead. Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM, in partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal. You're listening to Jazz Shapers. My business shaper today is John Bird. He's the founder uh, of The Big Issue. And we're at the point of the story where I believe The Big Issue might make an entrance stage left. So you've established yourself as a printer. You've become that expert in the room. You're welcome into places. There's been this long journey of working and of meeting different people and all sorts of ideas are formulated. And you've actively been connecting yourself, if you like, as you said, with the positive social impact that business can have. Was there a light bulb moment when you went, I'm not going to do this anymore, I'm going to launch something which is going to be a newspaper or a magazine for the streets? Or was it part of a longer conversation? How did it actually happen? Well, it wasn't It wasn't so that... I mean, I was doing work for people like Pan American and the Royal Academy and the Tate Gallery and, uh, and the Oxford University Press and was really doing a pretty good job and enjoying it. But I was still very restless and I was at the same time I was writing plays. I'd married for the second time. I was on my second family. Uh, I was writing these plays which were crap but uh, got an audience because I got all my mates who were printers and electricians in so I knew how to fill theatres. In 1987, I saw on the television a very big-nosed Scotsman who I used to know 20 years before uh, when I was on the run from the police living in Edinburgh. And I re-met him. I went to see him. And him and his wife, who I knew, his wife when she was the girlfriend, had started the body shop. And it was Anita Roddick and Gordon Roddick. Uh, And it was Gordon who, in 1990, went to New York and saw a street paper operating there and was blown away with this idea of people selling a paper so that they could get out of trouble. He spoke to somebody who was selling a paper who had been in and out of the prison system for most of his life. So Gordon came back, decided to do a street paper, uh, couldn't get anybody to do it, i.e. the homeless organisation said you can't give homeless people money because they'll only spend it on drink and drugs and all that stuff. And then he came to me because I was an ex-offender and all that stuff and rough sleeper and 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 I said, look, you know, if I start this, I'd start it as a business. 
uh, as a social business. I started as a business because I wouldn't start it as a charity because charities can't give people work. And I'd run it as a crime prevention programme. So the whole idea is that it is about keeping people out of the grief. Whenever I had work and whenever I had honest ways of making money, I much preferred it to stealing and begging. And I modelled the whole thing on, on my own life. So it was extraordinary that I got this money from Mr Gordon Roddick, who is the co-founder of, of The Big Issue. Lots more coming up from my amazing business shaper, John Burr. Time for some more music. This is Nova Bossa Nova from Marcus Valley. He'll be playing live tonight at the Islington Assembly Hall in North London for Jazz FM. Tickets still available on the Jazz FM website. Olha, quem vê cara não vê rosto mais bonito Quem vê corpo não vê nada mais perfeito Quem se chega se amarra no teu jeito Quem te toca fica louco de paixão Pra mim não tem saída that was Nova Bossa Nova from Marcus Valley. John, we've been talking about um, luck in a way, meeting Gordon Roddick, married to Anita, their ideas of, and ahead of their time, as was yours, which is that business can impact society in a positive way. That thinking's grown over the last 15, 20 years, and it's almost become horribly fashionable, and, and for the wrong reasons. But at the heart of what you did then was a kind of a a personal view that this would make a big difference as you said it would if you are earning an honest day's work honest day's living you're probably not going to get yourself into the same sort of trouble your magazine your um what do you call it the the, the the street magazine is now in australia ireland south korea south africa japan namibia kenya malawi and taiwan and there are probably more when you set it up little acorn as it was did you think yeah this is a great idea or was it no this is just the right thing to do and let's see what happens um, I met uh, a government minister a few years ago and he said to me, he, a former government minister, I should say, he said to me, you know, John, I'm really sorry. I never believed in you when you first started. And I, I actually said some horrible things behind your back. And I was very malicious because I, I thought you were just going to come and go. Uh, and I said, well, why would you feel that? That's exactly how I felt. Because I thought it was going to, I thought it was a wonderful experiment. I thought there was very little way that we would be able to turn this vast army of of people with drink and drug problems into a functioning sales force. And it was largely because of the grace of God. And the grace of God is not me; it's the public, because the public, beca- virtually every member of the public became a social worker, mm. became a psychologist, became a listener. And I have, I stand, I'm, I stand in wonder, and watch big issue vendors encountering the public. The public are uh, enraptured by the by the relationship when it works, because some some big issue vendors are not very nice. Mm. Uh, but it's it's the work of the public. It's not our work. And when people say to me, you you know, you're some kind of genius zeitgeisty, I say, no, 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 no. The public, when you've got 100,000, 200,000, half a million social workers buying the paper and then they go back to working in the record shops or working, making sandwiches or working in an office or working on the transport, you think, wow. But did you have to do, I mean, I, I talked to other business leaders about their their sales force, about customer service and all that. You're working with people who have been through the mill, who have lived rough, who have had drink and maybe carry on having drink and drugs issues and and in, and in different ways, many people have tried to help, as it were, in that kind of the broadest sense of the word. How did you ensure that those people could be, and you said some of them aren't you know, nice, everyone, I mean, humans are humans, but the majority of those vendors are, 
they that they've got their stuff together. I mean, how do you ensure that you get the right people being able to do a good, you know, deliver great service over a period of time? Because you've got a very difficult workforce to manage. Well, that's that's a, again, a, a, it it is the the discipline of the marketplace. I remember one particular guy who was about six foot nine, a big African American who'd come over here really probably to cause grief and he was on a lot of drugs and all that and we met him and he was in a real state and we uh, we reluctantly gave him a pitch and he started off shoplifting and being quite aggressive to people but then the marketplace and I'm not I'm not a Thatcherite but the marketplace started to discipline him because he found he could do a lot better if he was, if nice. he was kind and yeah. thoughtful. And he actually turned into an incredibly kind and thoughtful person. Uh, and I've seen it happen so many, many times. I've also seen the opposite, where people are very, very kind to the to, to the person they're selling to, and then when they encounter me, they say, oh, yeah, 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 I'm selling your bloody paper, you know, and all that stuff. So, you know, sometimes it's a switching on and switching off. But everybody in sales sometimes hmm. has to pretend that they're happier and more fulfilled when they're trying to sell you a television set than, than they really are, because if they don't, you won't buy the television set. We'll have our final chat with John, plus play a track from the latest album from Christine Tobin. That's after the latest traffic and travel here on Jazz FM. Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM, in partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal. The door, it opened slowly My father, he came in I was nine years old He stood so tall above me And his blue eyes, they were shining His voice was very cold That was Christine Tobin and the story of Isaac from the former Jazz FM album of the week, A Thousand Kisses Deep. John, we've talked a lot about the past and um, and naturally because I wanted people to understand where you'd come from to get to where you've been and we've kind of jumped over, if you like, 20 years of developing the big issue. Um, th- I'm imagining there were many trials and tribulations and we won't unfortunately have time to go through those, but just to give people a sense of the level of um, r- recognition that you've got over the years... I'm just going to list a few here. You were late named BBC London legend, winner of the UN Habitat Scroll of Honour, uh, shortlisted for you the UN Best Practice Award, an MB obviously back in 1995, the Ernst Young Social Entrepreneur of the Year back in 2008, and most recently an honorary doctorate, doctorate of business from Plymouth University. I'm sure they don't impress you, even though I suppose you, you know you maybe on one level you go, is that me really? What's it going to be like going forward? Um, I hear you. I mean, what's what's the future going to look like for you and what John Burr is going to be doing with the rest of his life? I know you've got um, a show coming up in uh, the Leicester Square Theatre, um, which is on May the 14th, if my sources are right. Um, 7.30. 7.30. Don't miss which it. Which is called the Money, Sex and Justice Roadshow. It's about me being a serious comic. If you want to know what I'm doing... I'm trying to change the world. Uh, I've probably, hopefully, got another 20 years. Um, What I'm doing is I'm taking some of the knowledge that I've got and looked at government and realised, of course, that government creates as many problems that it solves. And I'm in the middle of loads of um, attempts at at trying to get the government to reinvent itself. So I'm a very busy geezer 
Um, you look a busy geezer. Yeah. What does the busy geezer want to be remembered for, really? I mean, I'm not, I don't want to jump 20 years or even 30 years or all being well 50 years, John. I hope oh, we have another okay. chat in 50 years. But seriously, what is it? Because uh, I meet lots of people in business and, they, and I don't often talk about legacy. What's going to be John Burr's legacy, mm. all being well? Um, I, th- I would like my legacy to be uh, incredibly simple, which is around um, the need to uh, f- the, the the need to to not take people on a journey from A to Z that you kind of let them off at the A at the letter F, because that's what government does. If you look at the National Health Service, for instance, I want to reform the National Health Service because I want to make it the National Health Service rather than the National I'll Get You Back Into Health Service. Prevention is the biggest cure that you can ever have. 70% of the National Health Service's core is is the problems of, of people eating the wrong stuff, drinking the wrong stuff, not having the right exercise so I'm a. I want to make prevention. I want. To, I actually want an intellectual revolution around how we encounter poverty, where how we encounter illness, uh, and I want us all to be healthy, uh, and I want us all to be thinking positively about the world. And unfortunately, most people are kind of weighed down mm. by simply living. It is such a hard job today to just make ends meet. John, thank you so much for being my business shaper. What's your song choice before I let you go and why have you chosen it? Caravan, uh, largely because I love Duke Ellington. I love jazz. I, I grew up on jazz. I, at the age of 15, when I was running away, I was always to be found in the Café Le Jazz Hot. Uh, Caravan is staggeringly beautiful and, and melodic and musical on very, very many levels. I'm not a musicologist. I'm just an enjoyer of music. John, thank you so much for being my business shaper. This is Caravan from Duke Ellington. That was the song choice of my iconoclastic business shaper today, John Bird, the founder of The Big Issue. A role model, uh, someone who believes in remaining positive, someone who believes in the power of work to ensure that life is as good as it possibly can be. And he has thrown down the gauntlet for all of us. Can we create that intellectual revolution around prevention rather than cure? Do join me again, same time, same place, for another edition of Jazz Shapers. That's 9am next Saturday morning here on Jazz FM. In the meantime, though, do stay with us. Coming up next, it's Nigel Williams. Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal.